I love books that center around dealing with the consequences of one's actions. And who better to deal with those consequences than a magical cleanup crew? Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Melissa Caruso. The second book in her Rooks and Ruin trilogy, The Quicksilver Court, is out now from Orbit Books. Melissa and I discussed the battle tactics of LARPing, writing settings as a character, and her tried and true oh shit chain method of writing. And now, on to the interview. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Melissa. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, the way I kind of like to start everyone out is just taking you way back and asking, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? So uh, for me, I feel like it's just really always been there since the beginning when I was uh, ever since I was a kid. If a story had magic or swords or dragons into it, I was way more interested than if it didn't, Uh, you know, to the point where I remember in school, in uh, in middle school, my teacher, you know, we had this like read whatever you want kind of program in my English class. And the teacher said, Melissa, can you please read something besides fantasy just once? I know you're reading like all these books. Just pick something that's not fantasy. So I said, okay, and picked science fiction. <laughs> like, ha, ah, that'll show you. But um, but yeah, for me, it's just always really been there since day one. Everything's better with magic. Yes, I agree. I know uh, I was kind of the same. I think back in elementary school, we had this program where they would try to get us to read. So I think they called it surf, which technically was supposed to be silent uninterrupted reading for fun, I think is what it was. Uh, but I always just called it shut up and read fantasy. Nice. So that was how I got started. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's that's really the first, uh, I don't know, 18 years of my life, shut up and read fantasy. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, me as well with a slight break for school and then getting right back into yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the first things that stood out to me in your author bio is that you're a longtime LARPer, yes. which I believe is live action role playing. Yes. So how did you get started with this and why do you love it? Oh, well, uh, I absolutely love it. I got started in high school when I had a friend who was a LARPer and he told me about it. And I was like, are you kidding? This sounds like the most amazing thing. And um, I love it. Uh, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, one of the big ones is that basically, so I'm that rare thing, which is a creative person who's also an extrovert. And uh, <laughs> there aren't a lot of ways that you can be creative in a group. And obviously, you know, like gaming is one of those. Tabletop gaming too is a great collaborative environment. But I also love being outdoors and being physical and running around and, and you know, uh, putting on funky costumes and getting the adrenaline rush of having uh, weird spectral hounds chase you through the woods at night. Like there's not a lot of ways you can experience that in a safe way in your daily life. Uh, so uh, I absolutely love that. I love the um, just the fact that it's immersive. It's this wonderful, immersive, collaborative storytelling, uh, and uh, which is an, an experience that it's very hard to get anywhere else. It's, and it's much more... Um, immediate than writing too. Like you write a book and then, okay, maybe a year later, your readers will read it. You don't get to see them read it. And you know, if you're lucky, maybe they'll tweet, oh, this made me cry. And then you're like, oh, that's great. But you know, if you make someone cry in a LARP, 
they're crying right there and you're looking at their face and you can see it. <laughs> that really feels <laughs> wonderful. I mean, you know, assuming they're enjoying the emotional catharsis of crying as opposed to they stub their toe or something. So that's, that's really great. But just the, the sort of the social experience of everybody getting together and making this story happen while dressed up in amazing costumes and having these fabulous escapist adventures. Yeah, this is just absolutely confirming to me my theory that writers thrive on reader tears. Yes. So it's good to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> we really do. They're like candy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I'm honestly not that familiar with LARP for the most part. So I'm curious, like as someone who's pretty experienced, what are some of the most common misconceptions you find that people tend to have about LARP? So uh, one of the problems with uh, with outsider conceptions of LARPing is that if you Google it, one of the first things you're going to see is some really dorky videos. And the fact is, <laughs> LARPing looks terrible from the outside because it's being done. It's not, there's not a lot of money in it. It's a bunch of people with varying budgets getting together with whatever costuming and props they could scrape together. And, and you have to be immersed and your imagination is filling in a lot of the gaps to make it look good, you know? Um, so on video, it looks terrible. Also, I think we're really not taking this very seriously, right? I think people think, oh, LARPers, well, there are these weirdos who are sort of out of touch with reality and and uh, don't realize how dorky they are. We know exactly how dorky we are. We're embracing that because we're just out there having fun and nobody's supposed to be like watching us on the internet looking like idiots. We're just supposed to be heroes in our own little minds, having a great time. And then afterwards we laugh about it and, you know, tell stories and, uh, and have a great time with it. So, I think uh, also it's um, easy for people not to realize how accessible it is in the sense of um, that, like, you don't need to get your secret invitation to go do it. You can just you can just go and try it out if it sounds fun to you. It's most LARP communities, and it varies, but most LARP communities are incredibly welcoming. It will be happy to bring you in and tell you what you need to do and help you find gear and everything you need. Um, so if it sounds like something that would be fun, I highly encourage everybody to go try it. I mean, it, this is me talking from ignorance as well, and I'm sure it varies from group to group. Is this the kind of thing that, like, say, if I wanted to start LARPing this weekend and there was an event going on, can I just show up? Or do I have to, like, have an outfit already? Do I have to have registered somewhere? Oh, well, it okay. So it depends a little bit on the type of LARP. There's all different kinds of uh, LARPs. There's like ones that are run at conventions. They're little one shots and usually don't have a lot of, um, they'll have pre-created parts and they might, they probably don't have combat, although some might. I tend to play um, campaign LARPs, which have a, a series of events, a little bit more like a TV show where you have episodic events that take a weekend. And um, if you are, uh, for most of those LARPs, at least in the areas of the US where I play, if you want to NPC, you can just show up and they'll give you weapons and they'll give you costuming and it's free. Um, you can just walk in and I mean, you'll feel like you have no idea what you're doing for the first event, but they'll, they'll help you figure it out. You know, it helps to have at least read the rule book. But uh, if you're a player, if you're a PC, then you have to have registered and paid and create your character and uh, and you'll want to get costume. They're not, no one's going to provide you with costuming and weapons if you're a player. Uh, although you could probably, bar you know, I've showed up and been like, I don't have any weapons. Mine are broken. Can I borrow someone's? You can usually, someone will make it happen. Uh, because like I said, it's a very friendly community. But, uh, but yeah, if you wanted to try it, uh, you can show up to NPC with zero experience and zero equipment. And in theory, a good LARP should take care of you. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of LARPs out there, and some of them may be less equipped to handle that than others. But uh, most of them will take good care of you and get you going. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's encouraging to hear. I mean, it's always sounded like something that would be so much fun. It's, um, it's a blast. I absolutely love it. 
Yeah. Um, well, I'm curious as a writer, so have there been any ways that your experience with LARP has affected your writing? Absolutely. There's a whole, whole bunch of ways it's affected it um, to the point where I have uh, friends who have played in LARPs that I've run who have also read my books and they're like, I feel like this is a very familiar experience. <laughs> I feel like I've been in some of these scenes, Melissa. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a few ways it's actually been really helpful. One is um, the thing I mentioned about having uh, that immediacy with your audience in LARPing uh, that you don't have as a writer really helped me as a writer because I was a writer first, but uh, running LARPs helped me be aware of my audience in a way that I wasn't previously uh, when I was just kind of writing for myself, like in a room without any real concept that people were eventually going to be reading this. Just being able to see those reactions and and think about things like, okay, oh, they're going to really like, it. there's a big difference between just writing a story as it occurs to you versus thinking, how can I best tell this story in a way that is going to uh, delight, surprise my audience, make them cry, make them, you know, excited, like just really thinking about how that audience is going to interact and respond with the story and what they're going to bring to it uh, in a much more collaborative way than, than me just sitting in an echo chamber telling the story to myself. Uh, I think it really helped with that. Um, it also really affected the way I write politics. I write a lot of political fantasy and I feel like the reason I'm able to do so with any confidence is from uh, having run a lot of political plot in LARPs and seeing um, what makes interesting political plot. Because it's so easy in writing or in gaming for that to degenerate into just a bunch of people sitting around having really boring conversations in a room, right? <laughs> yep. So so figuring out, okay, having had tr the trial and error in games of, okay, well, first you have to get people emotionally invested in the questions that people are having their political maneuverings about and, you know, uh, doing things like finding ways to make it more visually exciting. So it's not just people talking. Like I have a couple of scenes that are effectively vote scenes or debate scenes in my books. And I've introduced in a lot of cases, like a physical mechanic that, uh, like I have one scene where people are lighting candles to indicate who they're supporting in this big climactic scene. And that just, it makes it a lot more interesting than if they're just going, Oh yeah, I've, you know, I'm raising a hand. I guess you can't see that on a podcast, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but right. If you're just raising a hand and saying, I, uh, that like doesn't really get the same um, uh, impact as if you've got something you know uh, more visual and visceral that you're basing around, and um, uh, so things like that. And also um, uh, another way that it's influenced me, and I feel like this is true of tabletop games too, is uh, just giving my characters the freedom to both be very smart and very dumb, uh, because anyone who's ever GM'd can tell you that players will both. Think of things you would never have thought of in very brilliant ways. And also, you know, uh, so like, for instance, I had, uh, there's a point in my series, and this isn't really a, a spoiler in my first series, where uh, I knew that my characters were going to have to try to think of a way to kill someone who was moderately immortal. And so I went to a bunch of my gamer friends and said, all right, if you have to kill somebody who's immortal, here are the parameters. What do you try? And they, so I have a room full of seasoned gamers going, all right, well, I try this, uh, you know, seal them in cement and throw them in the ocean, this, that, the other, you know, they have all these crazy ideas so that I could kind of just have those in mind and make sure my characters were being creative and intelligent in their uh, solutions. And then on the other hand, there's that question of like, okay, well, my plot at this point says that, you know, they do something kind of impulsive. Is that really realistic? But if you've ever like played a game, you know, yes, if you put in the evil glowing purple, don't touch this 
rock artifact of death, someone's going to lick it, right? Someone is just going to walk right up and lick that. And that is a very human thing to do. And if you present that the right way as a writer, it will be absolutely believable, um, provided you establish there is a character who is the evil rock licking type. So, and there's more. I could keep going, but I won't because we don't have all day. <laughs> yeah, true. But yeah, no, I love that. Especially, uh, it's always interesting to me. And I mean, there are some like clear exceptions, but whenever someone's like, oh, you know, like in this book, this character was just unbelievable. They were acting so dumb. Like no one would do that. No, nope. <laughs> like if you ever spend much time around actual humans, like, yeah. yes. <laughs> yes, humans are exactly that dumb. <laughs> Yeah. And then I know also, uh, I'm assuming this is from your LARP experience, but uh, you definitely went viral a while back talking about fighting and dresses, like sword fighting and yes. dresses. Yeah. I feel like um, the big way, so LARP fighting, there are ways that it is, uh, that it helps you and there are ways that it doesn't. The way that it doesn't is, well, obviously we're using very safe, soft padded weapons and not really trying to murder each other. So the actual blow by blow sword play is going to be very different. But the ways that it's extremely helpful is things like, okay, what's it like? Uh, Uh, fighting tactically in a group. Things like uh, how can you manipulate uh, uh, people's attention and focus? How do do you work in with terrain? How does does the gear that you're wearing interact with how you're moving and things like that? It's very useful for. Um, And that has absolutely influenced the way that I write action scenes. Uh, One of the things, especially because in my whole first series, I really have my main character as a non-combat character. And for that matter, my second series, she's kind of a non-combat character too. Um, Someday I'm going to write a series with a sword fighting main character and it's going to be great. Uh, but in the meantime, there's that question of, okay, well, in an action scene, what can a character do who isn't trained for combat? And LARPing is very helpful for that because you realize how important things like distractions are or having the person who can just, you know, grab the thing that you need and like run off with it while the other people cover them or whatever. There's just so many different things that you can do that are going to affect the flow of a fight. I don't know. And a lot of things are important that you wouldn't think were important if you had just watched a lot of choreographed action sequences. Yeah. And I know, uh, I guess maybe taking like you're saying from like watching in visual media, this happens, but uh, fight scenes don't really do it for me if it's just like, oh, I throw a fireball and you throw a bigger fireball and we just keep hitting each other back and forth kind of thing. Right. There's a lot more that goes into a fight. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And they're going to be much more interesting when instead of just taking turns like hitting each other, you've got some kind of weird terrain situation. People are swinging from chandeliers or, you know, (laughs) uh, kicking tables at each other or, you know, there's something something is coming in and messing things up. There's like a, I don't know, wave sweeping across the deck of a ship, messing things up or something like that to make it more interesting. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, okay. So your Twitter is an absolute goldmine for anyone interested in writing craft. And I think my favorite thread of yours is one describing uh, your method for improving urgency and agency in your writing, which you've brilliantly named the oh shit chain. So uh, can you walk us through what exactly goes into this prestigious oh shit chain? (laughs) Sure. So um, uh, I came up with this when I was uh, this particular way of looking at it. I mean, it's not like a brand new idea by any stretch, but, um, I was working on a book where I had a series of events that were happening, but I felt like I was losing urgency and agency between them. Cause a lot of them were big surprises where the villain would do something unexpected. Oh no. Or there'd be some deep character moment, but I didn't really, I felt like between that, my characters are just kind of like sipping coffee and being like, Oh, that was terrible. Well, 
now what? You know, and that's and at that point the tension just falls on the floor. So um, so at the oh shit chain, uh, the idea is basically okay. Well, your story starts out with a problem. And then, uh, in reaction to that problem, you're, uh, which, which is the first, oh shit, like, oh shit, here's our first problem. And okay, what are we going to do about this problem? Your characters come up with a solution to try. Solution can fail. Doesn't matter. Like if you know, as the writer, and this is something I have to tell myself, it's okay. If I know it's not going to work, they just have to be trying something. Otherwise they're just sitting around waiting for the next bad thing to happen. So, you know, they have this, the, their reaction, uh, what they're trying to do, new goal that they're trying to pursue, but then either it succeeds or it fails. It doesn't matter, but they're trying creates a new problem either because uh it worked and now the the antagonist maybe is retaliating which is the new oh shit now well we we did steal the artifact from the bad guy and now he's raining fire down on our home city and destroying it and now what do we do uh or or it could be because you screwed up and oh shit we were sneaking into the bad guy's lair to steal the artifact and we got caught and now they're gonna throw us in prison now what do you do um so uh and then there's the reaction to that uh, the new goal, the new action that the uh, uh, characters are taking to deal with this new problem. And then you get a new, oh shit. Uh, and that keeps the urgency rolling because they're always either trying to fix, scrambling, you know, to fix whatever latest terrible thing has happened or the new terrible thing is happening. Yeah. Uh, before I started like consciously thinking about story and everything, I never realized that failure is so much more interesting for the most part than success in a book, right? Because it keeps ratcheting up the tension. There's so many like sideways things that situations can do. So yeah, I definitely love the concept of this oh shit chain. I also, don't forget uh, one of my favorites, success that didn't do what you thought it would and actually causes Uh, a bigger problem. Uh, That's always a fun one too. Yeah, like you, you know... um, Oh, I could think of an example that's great, but it's a terrible, terrible spoiler for Mistborn. But if you've read that, <laughs> <laughs> yep. what happens at the end of the book? You won. Great. Yep. Things are great. Now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you've repeatedly said before that one of the most difficult aspects of writing for you is managing transitions. So like how characters get from one place to another, how one scene progresses to the next. Uh, Can you share any tips you found that make this easier? Yes. God, I hate them so much. They're the absolute worst. (laughs) Uh, I don't know any writer who likes writing transitions. So, um, so, okay. Uh, Bearing in mind that I hate them. I think the best, one of the best tips I have is if you can just skip the transition entirely. Like when you need, okay, my, my, my characters are traveling from city A to city B instead of doing the, like, it's very tempting to do the Tolkien thing and be like, okay, I'm going to give you 20 pages of traveling through the Misty Mountains. Um, Mm-hmm. But unless you are just an incredibly lyrical writer who can make that description, like encapsulate character development and mood shift and like just really be beautiful to listen to and powerful and, and, and sustain it in and of itself, which like, if you can do that, great. I can't. Um, but, uh, but unless you can do that, just skip it and be like three days later, we arrived at the city. Yay. We're done. Um, or, you know, or sometimes you might just need a couple sentences like, okay, well, I do need to tell you three days later, uh, starving and ragged, having run out of food and lost our carriage and wolves attacked and ate 
Bob, we arrived at the city, you know, but you don't, if, if nothing really, if we don't care about Bob and we don't need to see him get eaten by wolves, you know, you know I mean, that does sound kind of exciting, but you can, you can skip it if it's, if it's really only going to be a side trip for your story. Um, another way, if you can't do that, if you're like, no, really, I can't just jump too much changes in the interim. I try to combine that transition with something else to make it more important, like uh, character development. Uh, like, okay, these characters really need to have this really fraught conversation, or you know, the romance needs to advance, or or these characters need to have a fight or something. Then have that happen during the transition. Like, oh, we're traveling in the rain, and we stop at the inn, and like we're out in the rain, and we're having this angsty conversation, and then we fight, and then we kiss, and then we move on. And great, isn't that much better than twenty pages of carriage journey if then then we're at and then we're at the new city but yeah just jump cutting to the next thing is a beautiful thing i wish i had learned to do much earlier in life (laughs) yeah i know when there can't be those beautiful jump cuts uh, i always appreciate as a reader whenever uh scenes don't only serve one purpose so point a to point b should not be the only purpose of a scene i feel like absolutely but then also i really appreciate those jump cuts i think there's an example of a book I just read, uh, She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan. Ooh. There'd be scenes where like, oh, we have to travel over to this city a uh, hundred miles away and conquer it. The next day we arrived and we were outside the city. It was like, okay, Yay! I can appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's great. And you know, half the time the writer will have written that out and then gone, what am I doing? And just deleted it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I believe it. Okay, so let's step away from the craft side of things for a moment and talk about the business side of being an author, because you've shared some great thoughts about this in the past. uh, And I'm curious, what do you wish more writers knew about book deadlines? Oh, my goodness. So, okay, there is so much I really wish every author knew going into a traditional publishing contract about deadlines. So the first thing is that your editor doesn't know how long it takes you to write a book. They have no idea because this varies so much from writer to writer. And they also don't know what takes you longest. Some people draft really fast and take forever to edit. Some people take forever to draft because they're kind of editing as they go and then their edits are really quick. Your editor knows absolutely none of that. They're going to give you a date in the contract and be like, how does this sound? And you can ask for a different date, which is the second thing that's very important to know. And you want to do the math before you sign that contract, because once those dates are in their system, suddenly there's all of this production stuff hanging out of there. All these other people whose jobs and schedules hinge on the dates that are in that contract once they're finalized. So what you want to do, if you're an unpublished writer seeking to be published, figure out now, start tracking how many words per day you write uh, and how stressed writing that many words makes you and think ahead. Like, am I like, is my work situation going to change? Am I, uh, what sort of commitments do I have? Am I planning to have kids? And like sort of account for that in terms of how that's going to impact your schedule um, and just really do the math to figure out how long each phase takes you. And if you think you're going to need more time, it's fine to ask for that time up front as early as possible. No one's going to be like, oh, well, I'm sorry. You said you needed one more month than that in order to write this book. And so no publishing contract for you. I mean, they don't care if it comes out in July or in August, you know, they're probably going to be fine with that. And the other thing is, so when you're when you're doing your math to figure out if you can write this book in time, ask your editor about the production schedule so that you understand it. Because just like 
you don't realize that the editor doesn't magically know your process. The editor doesn't realize that you don't magically know their process. So it's always fine to ask like, okay, well, um, what does it mean? How many drafts am I going to be doing? How much turnaround time will you need to get your edits done before you get that back to me? Because you can say like, oh, this looks fine. I'm turning in my draft here. And then three months later, I'm supposed to turn in the next draft. Well, if six weeks of those three months are your editor doing edits, then you don't have three months to edit the book. And that's just really good to know. So just keep that communication process open. Don't be afraid to ask more time if you need it. Uh, nobody is going to hate you. You're, oh, oh, oh. And the other thing is don't be afraid to turn in an imperfect draft. I feel like in the whole process for years and years and years, in many cases, writers are trying to get their books as perfect as possible before anyone else sees them uh, and just absolutely polished and professional and beautifully crafted. And your beta readers look at it three times first and you do all these passes before anybody else sees it. And you still tend to carry that mentality with you when you come as a new author to working with a traditional publisher. But the thing is that the editor is now on your team. They're on your side of the laptop looking at it and there if you get it polished and perfect and your editor's going to look and be like oh well how about these massive structural changes and you'll be like "Mm, oh yeah that would have been good to know (laughs) much earlier in my process it's you're bringing them in earlier than you normally would and that's fine like you know they're think of them as the person who's going to help you remodel your house you know it if, if your wall paint has not been scrubbed perfectly clean, that's fine because they're going to probably repaint that wall with you anyway. Like you're going to be nailing shelves up. You're going to be knocking stuff down. Really does not have to be perfect before you hand it off. And that's okay. You just want to get it to the point where um, that all the big things you already know how to fix have been fixed. Uh, if there are little things that your editor probably isn't going to care about at this point to, to tell, give you feedback about anyway, you can fix them in the next draft it's totally fine. Don't kill yourself making everything perfect before your deadline. It's so easy to burn out that way. Yeah. Don't spend an entire week getting that transition point A to point B <laughs> perfectly if they're just going to cut it out, right? Right. Exactly. Right. And it, it's, you know, make sure that your plot points are all where they should be, but don't worry about about just having, oh, my dialogue has to be absolutely perfect and really snappy, you know, for your first draft. That's not going to be what they're talking to you about at that point. Right. Yeah, that all makes sense. Um, Okay. Well, uh, you're here to talk about your latest book, which is uh, The Quicksilver Court. And I guess uh, in the interest of people who haven't read the first book yet, uh, the entire Rooks and Ruin trilogy. So do you have a pitch for the Rooks and Ruin trilogy? Yes. So, okay. It's tricky because there's um, uh, stuff happens in the first book that that is very spoilery. (laughs) So, uh, but I can tell you that the first book starts out with um, my main character, Ricks has a broken magic that uh, means that instead of having powerful life magic, she kills everybody who she touches. Um, But instead of being honesty about this, she's very pragmatic and is just trying to host delicate negotiations between her country and a, and a couple of neighboring ones when uh, things go horribly wrong. Uh, and her, oh, she lives in an ancient rambling family castle that she's the warden of that has a door that must never be opened. And basically things go horribly wrong. And there's a night of blood and magic and, uh, mayhem in which, uh, terrible things, uh, are set into motion. Uh, she spends the rest of the trilogy to fix that, um, with the help of, of a dashing international magic troubleshooting squad who she meets when they are masquerading as a theater troupe. No, that's that's a great pitch. And I do love how, I mean, 
I personally feel like it's not really a spoiler. Uh, maybe we'll edit this out if you feel otherwise. But the fact that the door shall not be opened and there's a night of terrible magic and mayhem and blood, I feel like readers can probably guess where that's going. Um, <laughs> and it happens so early on, which is fascinating because so much is spent on the aftermath of that rather than leading up to what, as readers, we might be expecting will happen anyways. Right. Yeah. No, I, I mean, you know, I don't think that's a huge spoiler. Maybe, maybe warn people, like if you really care about like major spoiler, well, about mine, it's not a major spoiler. It's a really minor spoiler, but yeah, it's like chapter two or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, it's, it's very early on. Yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, well, you know, the story I wanted to tell was not about people waiting to do a thing. It was about doing a thing and then having more horrible things happen and more horrible things and things just keep getting more horrible forever until the end of the book where maybe they get better. I can't tell you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we've got to live up to that. Oh shit, Jane. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Go big or go home, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, so I am curious because I know this Rooks and Ruin trilogy is set in the same broader world as your uh, debut trilogy, the Swords and Fire trilogy. So I'm curious, what made you decide on the creative end of things to set this trilogy in the same world? Well, uh, it was actually, interestingly enough, it was, um, I had some other ideas for books in my head that I had been, and in fact, I'd actually started writing one, um, but my publisher wanted more in the same world. Uh, and for me, I was like, oh, okay, uh, well, that's fine because I'm the kind of person who has a million bajillion ideas and I'm always happy to come up with new ones. Uh, but they said, well, maybe something in the same world, but with new characters and maybe, you know, happening later. And for me, because uh, world building is a lot of the joy of writing fantasy for me, and I always love to be doing new and exciting world building, um, I really wanted to, instead of telling a similar story um, with similar characters in a similar situation, I really wanted to take it to a new uh, location and, um, and be exploring new parts of the world and new aspects of the cosmology and the magic than I had in the previous series, which I do. So... It's, uh, it really is, I mean, there, there's, there's some connections to the previous, uh, series, but they're mostly pretty subtle and I'm really delving into, uh, uh, very new aspects of the setting, which was really fun for me to get to look at things from a different angle. Yeah. And, uh, I can testify as someone who came to your work with the Obsidian Tower first, rather than the Swords and Fire trilogy, you definitely don't need any prior knowledge. You can go into it and fully enjoy it. I'm sure I missed some minor cameos or, uh, some allusions to what happened in the original series, but it didn't hurt my enjoyment. Oh, I'm so glad. Cause that was my goal. I really wanted new readers to be able to come in with Obsidian Tower and not be at any kind of disadvantage. You know, there are the little Easter eggs in there for the people who've read Swords and Fire, but I wanted that to be like fun bonus little, oh, I know what that's about, as opposed to like, oh, right. I get what's happening or why is everyone making a big deal about this guy? You know, I because I feel like sometimes that can happen um, with follow-up yep. series. And as a reader, that always annoys me. <laughs> so I didn't want my readers to have that experience. So it makes me very happy to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, uh, my understanding is also that this whole world that is in both of your series uh, originally started out, you were going to be writing an alternate history story with uh, the speculative elements sort of coming in later and resulting in the fantastical world that now is in both series. So how did this transition occur? And what do you think might have been different about the world if you'd conceived of it as this, you know, secondary fantasy world from the very, very start? Sure. Uh, well, so yeah, when I first wrote it, uh, it was going to be a standalone historical fantasy and there was magic, but it was uh, all going to be set in a pretty alternate Europe. And then 
uh, my publisher. But honestly, that's never, I was trying that because I was trying to push myself into historical fantasy just because I always like to try new things in each book and push myself in new directions. And um, when Orbit offered, uh, my uh, editor at the time, Lindsay Hall, wanted, uh, she, it was contingent on it becoming second world fantasy uh, instead, which I, totally agreed with and think was the right direction because uh, I feel like world building is um, just really being set free to do that world building was a really good change because that's where one of my strengths are. I'm less of a, you know, some people, their strengths are really in their deep research and their historical knowledge and getting all those details right. And that's, I like to make stuff up. Uh, <laughs> I like to play fast and loop and make stuff up and, and just add more magic and play with my, uh, play with my little toys and, and, and just be free to explore, uh, in my own head in new directions as opposed to in the existing world. So I think that was really the right choice. And I'm very glad that they wanted me to go that way. As for if it had been, uh, an original world from the start, instead of starting with an alternate Venice and then, uh, and then changing it. Well, I feel like right now, if you look at the whole world, the city of Rivera is a very close analog for Venice, but the farther out you get from it, the more makey uppy it becomes. Um, and I feel like that's <laughs> directly reflective of the fact that uh, my first story was mostly centered around just these two cities that are very, you know, uh, uh, are fairly close analogs for, um, you know, sort of late Renaissance Italy. And then uh, for the second ones that explore into new areas, uh, I just got to really let that world building free and there's much uh, less of a close analog. So if I'd started, uh, I, I think it wouldn't have been as closely mapped onto Venice and I wouldn't have like so many names that are just Italian names. You know, they would have been more makey uppy and things like that. Yeah, that all makes sense. And so uh, something I'm also curious about is so this being uh, the second series in this world, it's different in the sense that on the meta level, you knew it was going to be a series going into it, right? So you didn't know if it was just going to be a standalone or like standalone with series potential. So how did this affect your approach to writing the series compared to the Swords and Fire trilogy? It was a lot of fun knowing that it was a trilogy from the start. Um, it let me... Uh, so some of the big differences are I got to write book one knowing uh, that there would be big plot twists coming in books two and or three. And as a result, I could just really layer book one uh, with all kinds of little clues and foreshadowing and, uh, and uh, just scenes that would read very differently. Like I feel like after my goal is that after you read the Quicksilver Court, I want people to really want to go back and reread Obsidian Tower uh, with the new knowledge that they have gained uh, and and it, that it'll read a little bit differently on the second read through. And it was just getting to layer that stuff in was really a lot of fun, putting in those clues, which I couldn't really do as much uh, when I was writing the books kind of one at a time without having as clear an idea that there would be more or, or what was coming. So that was great. And also just being able to tell it as one coherent story. Uh, although they still each have their own plot that finishes and ends within the book, because I just think that's satisfying for me as a reader when I feel like I have some resolution at the end of a book, even if I know the greater yeah. story is continuing. So yeah, just, I don't know, it, layering all that stuff in was was uh, was a blast. And I really am uh, excited for readers to find what all the things I got to set up in book one that come to fruition in book two. Yeah, I imagine that's got to be like one of the most satisfying things as an author is like people going back like, oh, like I've read this three times and I'm still catching new details I didn't realize show up like later on down the road. Yeah, that is that is an amazing thing to hear. So I'm 
really excited to have the chance to to build something like that with all those little bits and pieces that I'm hoping people can pick up on. Well, uh, I'd love to hear more about what exactly the Rooks are. I'd ask about the Ruin part of the Rooks and Ruin series, but I feel like that may be getting too deep into plot spoilers. <laughs> probably, probably. I mean, you know, although I, I could just refer you to the oh shit chain again, like there's, there's things, <laughs> things keep going badly for my poor characters. I'm very mean to them in this series. Um, but, uh, but yes, the Rooks are, um, they are an international magic troubleshooting squad who uh, exist to basically deal with big magical messes, especially ones that have international implications in some way. Uh, I got the idea kind of, um, it was a combination of, I was thinking of, okay, so when I travel to places with a lot of history, like I uh, before I went to Ireland right around the time I was starting uh, writing this and also to uh, Mexico. And in both places, there were just places where there were these ruins that are, um, you know, everywhere you go that they would, there are these like just lumps in the earth and people go, oh yeah, there's, there's, you know, these are everywhere and there's old ruins under them. And, uh, you know, they're just lying there and you could just imagine in a society where there's all kinds of magic, like, okay, some of those are probably got old weapons in them or horribly dangerous things, you know, or, uh, uh, just, you know, now we have, chemical spills, but what if you've got magical alchemical spills that people have to clean up or, uh, you know, okay, there's this horribly cursed grove and then the the evil wizard who made it died, you know, so now what, who's going to deal with that mess? So these are the people who deal with that mess. (laughs) Um, and, and, and they clean up not only, uh, not only do they have various techniques for dealing with the dangerous magic itself, but they also, uh, deal with the uh, diplomatic messes that surround it because of course nobody wants to admit that their country was responsible for unleashing the dangerous alchemical substances into the water supply or, you know, okay, well, this noble just turned up murdered by magical means and who did it? And was it a foreign enemy or was it a domestic one? What's going on? Is there a conspiracy? So the, the rooks are the people who deal with this and they have a wide set of skills that they can bring to bear. And uh, it was really fun putting together that team. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, it it works on so many levels for me, because on the one hand, it gives this sort of deep sense of history to the world where you're like, okay, all these things have been around forever. And we're just now finding them and figuring out how to deal with them. And also, like, it's kind of your magical team that can do whatever, right? They can like investigate things, they can try to like, I don't know, I'm assuming put down some magic monster if it suddenly rises from the earth after a 1000 years. So it's just interesting to have that variety. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I had, I actually had a spreadsheet when I was designing them based on like, okay, what skills would they need and which character has each of these skills, you know, and how that helped me build the team realizing what, what needs they would have and what sort of, uh, and I, what set of personalities I could combine with the skills they'd need to create the Rooks. Yeah, I feel like that's definitely drawing on your role-playing experience in the past. How do you make the perfect party? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, uh, so a common theme I found in your past interviews is that you really wanted to make Gloaming Guard to come across as a setting that was almost a character in its own right. So how, as a writer, do you go about approaching a setting like that? And how is it different than writing just a regular setting? So, uh, okay. So I think that a lot of times when I'm writing a regular setting, it exists um, 
as kind of a backdrop that is either providing flavor or mood or uh, sort of just enhancing the scene in a more uh, like sort of lights and music kind of way. Uh, but for um, Glomingard, I really wanted a setting that you almost have a relationship with uh, that characters have feelings about that. It's also providing you obstacles or helping you in various ways. Like Glumigard is this, is this castle. It's got all these different parts to it. This has parts of it that are like built out of bones and parts that are this old lodge and parts of it that are, um, you know, ancient stone keep and some parts of it are living trees. And there's all these little hidden forgotten spaces in it that the main character uh, Rick's uh, knows and can move through, you know, and hide in and can really kind of use it to, her advantage but at the same time sometimes it's like well she can't go into any of the tree parts because her magic will kill the trees and that'd be super bad uh (laughs) you know so it can also be an obstacle as well um so also just that it would have a lot of personality that you feel like you know it that you get invested in it as a reader and don't want anything bad to happen to it and i love it when authors can pull that off where you feel like you have an investment in a place like maybe you've been there and you know it uh, and that you could get comfortable or uncomfortable there <laughs> depending on what kind of place it is, you know? Uh, and it was, uh, it was also sort of partly inspired by, I have uh, recurring dreams where there's a big old rambling house and I keep, I'm usually either either playing a game or running from something and I'm trying to find a place to hide or something like that. And I open the back of a closet and there's stairs. And then like, you know, you follow stairs and there's a little gap in the wall and you go in there and you come out on a different floor. And I wanted to have that kind of feeling that it's almost, uh, that it's holding things back from you and surprising you and kind of almost taking this active role in the story that you wouldn't expect a setting to do in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and for me, at least maybe from an aesthetic sense is like setting his character. It kind of reminded me of, I don't know if you're familiar with the Gormenghast trilogy, that big, creepy gothic castle. You know, the funny thing is I haven't read it, but I do feel like, so there was a point where I was a kid and I saw it in a bookstore and I saw a beautiful cover that just looked really moody. And I feel like that experience of seeing it, and I've always meant to read that trilogy, um, but I, I do feel like that experience of seeing that and imagining what that castle would be like may have indirectly yep. fueled <laughs> on a subconscious level how this has played out. So like I, I do, owe, even though I haven't read it, I feel like I do owe something to to the Gorbin Gas trilogy. Uh, I mean, even the name sounds a little similar, although the name actually comes from a different project that never flew that I cannibalized it from. But uh, uh, but yeah, absolutely. And I do, I really need to read that at some point because other people have made that comparison too. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. I guess technically I haven't read the trilogy either. I read half of the first book before I just could not suffer through it any longer. Oh, no. but, uh, <laughs> Maybe I don't need to read it then. <laughs> uh, I, it, it's a very me thing. I've heard tons of people rave about it. It's just the particular aspects of the prose, I think, didn't work with oh, me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so I love the side characters that you've created in the Rooks and Ruin books and, uh, the cast of Rooks that we've been talking about are definitely, I think, my favorites. So how do you go about approaching vivid and memorable side characters? So, uh, I think part of it is, um, I think that the trap that it's easy to fall into when creating side characters that I always try to avoid is, um, if you only think of them in relationship to your main character and don't make them in, you know, have their own independent stories, then, then a lot of times that's where they'll wind up falling flat for each of the rooks. I built them with their own, uh, backstories, their own secrets, their own like sort of goals and, uh, ways of, um, 
ways of approaching problems. Like everybody really approaches problems differently, which can create interesting dynamics and their own sets of skills that they're bringing, like that are, they're very distinct from each other. So that you don't have the problem, like in some shonen anime where like, okay, they're all fighters and there's one who's really good. <laughs> and then the others are not as good. And like, okay, well, what are they bringing to the team then exactly? Other than being kind of sucky backup fighters. Um, but, uh, you know, so I really wanted to give them each areas where they're strong and areas where they're weak, uh, places where they're desperately uncomfortable and places where they feel at ease uh, and letting that play off of each other. And, uh, and also, I think it also really helps to give each character their own voice uh, so that ideally when you hear them speaking, you'll really know who it is without even necessarily needing a dialogue tag. Ideally, I mean, you can't always do that all the time, but, um, you know, uh, having them use different swears or different degrees of swearing. And uh, uh, a tip I got once was having them um, say yes in different ways. Like, do you say, yeah, yep. Uh, of course, my leash. Like, you know, there's all kinds of different yeah, yeah, yeah. people can say yes and no. Uh, and different different solutions, you know, what, the, what their first response is in a crisis is very different for all of these characters and things like that. Oh, and also relationship dynamics with each other. That was a critical one I really tried to work out in advance uh, for the whole team because in theory they've been together for a while, like what their dynamics are with each other and how they play off each other and who teases who and who has friction with who and who has secret crushes on who. Uh, so, you know, uh, I think working that sort of stuff out is much more important than knowing their favorite food and their hobby and how tall they are, even though those are fun things. So there's nothing wrong with knowing those things, but, uh, but how they interact with each other and with the world around them, I think uh, is what really carries the weight for me. Yeah, I would agree. And I think it's like the age old advice where uh, all the characters should be like the hero of their own story kind of almost, yes. uh, but to the point where, I feel like they should be interesting enough that you could actually write a book about them and they could actually be the hero of their own story um, rather than just like they think of themselves as the hero of their own story. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the goal. It's it's hard to do that with everybody, but I, I, that's absolutely the goal to be like, yeah, I could totally imagine writing an entire story from this character's perspective and it would actually be interesting when you would learn some stuff. Uh, well, Without going into spoilers, if possible, what can readers expect to find in the Quicksilver Court that wasn't in the Obsidian Tower? Well, uh, <laughs> it is tough <laughs> to talk about this series without spoilers. But um, uh, for one thing, they're in a new location, um, which given that uh, in the first book, uh, so Rix has really spent almost her entire life in this one castle in its immediate environment. So now she's in a new place and is really out of water um, in that regard. And... Uh, uh, so that's new, um, and uh, things continue to escalate, and uh, that oh shit chain keeps turning, and there's um, a variety of new, exciting, terrible things that happen. Um, <laughs> oh, and you get um, you also get uh, much deeper into the Rooks' uh, backstories, you know, and and you learn a lot more about them and how they got to be where they are, and um, how that may or may not be biting them in the ass now in the present day <laughs> yeah uh that's i mean as we've been talking about the rooks are some very interesting side characters so i'm looking forward for everyone being able to learn more about them excellent but yeah so i guess looking forward is there anything you can tell us about whatever you're working on next well right now i'm working on book three of uh rooks and ruin um that would make sense <laughs> yes <laughs> uh and um as for 
after that, I can't say, but I have a new project that I'm excited about, but I can't say anything about it (laughs) other than that I'm really excited about it. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's always good to hear that there's something to come after this series. Um, But yeah, so another thing I'm always curious about is just, uh, are there any books that you've enjoyed lately that you can recommend? And it doesn't even have to be recent. Well, uh, uh, the... Semi recently, um, I really super enjoyed the Mask of Mirrors. Um, ah, by, yes, yes, uh, I love I, it. Yes, by uh, M A Carrick. Am I getting the second yep. initial? Okay, good, good. Yeah, um, I love that book. It was, you know, it's like I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is a chonker. This is so long. And then I opened it up and read it in two days because it's just that fast paced and all the twists keep coming and the world building is fantastic. And there's great outfits and amazing characters. There's a book with great side characters, like who yeah. could totally be the hero of their own story. And you really want to know what the heck is going on with them. Uh, I really can't wait for the sequel on that one. Highly recommend it. Um, and I'm also right now, um, I've been listening to more audiobooks lately, um, uh, which is very exciting for me. I previously couldn't because I'm hard of hearing, but I got hearing aids and they're, Bluetooth enabled, so I can just walk around listening to audiobooks on my hearing aids, and it's amazing. Um, so uh, right now, I'm listening to The Rage of Dragons uh, by Evan Winter, which I'm really loving, too. Uh, just a great book and a really good audiobook, too. And before that, I did a uh, my second, and I have so little time now that the highest praise I can give is that I all, that I did a gave a second read-through to uh, Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth, which I know are not news to anybody. Well, I mean, maybe they are. Maybe someone out there that maybe it's news that these are amazing books, but um, they talk about books that hold up well on a second read and you find, like what I was saying about finding all those things that mean more on the second read-through, and that was a really fun reread experience. So... Yeah, I bet. I very, very rarely reread books, but I do think I'll probably reread Gideon and Harrow before the last book comes out. Yeah. Oh, it's it's definitely worth it. Especially, I think, um, I mean, for Gideon, yeah, but but even more so for uh, Harrow, because there's all this stuff that has a lot more meaning. Like the first first time I listened to, because I listened to the audiobooks for them too, first time I listened to Harrow, I was like, oh, this is all really cool, but I feel like I don't know what's going on. And then the second read, I'm like, oh, that's <laughs> what's going on. Oh my God, that's amazing. You know, and I just get a lot more yeah. out of it the second time. Yeah, very much an acid trip read of a book. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's cool because I, I actually just finished uh, listening to the audio version of Rage of Dragons, I think last week. So Ooh. I'm coming right off of that and I loved it as well. Oh, really excellent. good book. Yeah, so... Uh, I guess the way I kind of like to close all these out is just asking you, what's one thing you're excited about right now? I am super excited about being fully vaccinated. Oh, yes. <laughs> that is, uh, you know, and being able to, I know that's not geeky, but I'm very excited to be able to get back to my life. Well, and to get back to LARPing, which is geeky. So there we go. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's, I'm, I've, uh, I haven't gotten to LARP for the entire pandemic, which is a big part of my social life and brings me much joy, as we were talking about earlier. And uh, I'm really super looking forward to being able to get back to it and also to bring my oldest daughter. Uh, daughter to uh play a lark with me for the first time she's npc'd them before but Ah. this will be her first time having her own pc character and we're like building up her kid and building her character and (laughs) you know it's just a really uh a heartwarming experience for a geek mom to have 
Yeah, that's so cool. That sounds so incredibly exciting. I'm excited for you. <laughs> oh, it's great. Nothing quite like giving your kid a training montage in your own backyard so they can become a badass sword <laughs> fighter and have everyone be going, why is this 17-year-old girl murdering me? Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Melissa. I think that wraps up everything I've got for you. This has been such a lovely conversation. Thank you. It was absolutely wonderful and a real pleasure. You can find Melissa Caruso on Twitter as Melissa Caru or at her website, melissacaruso.net. If you like books with vivid settings, colorful characters, and heaps and heaps of political intrigue, the Rooks and Ruin series is for you. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We've got exclusive episodes, video interviews, and more. Or take a minute of your time and leave us a review online. It means the world. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.